HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program is brought to you by Susty Party, an online party supply store for eco-friendly party products and biodegradable compostable tableware. For more information, visit SustyParty.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right, Thursday, 1 o'clock, and you have tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, on a lovely sunny day. And we are continuing our cider talk this week. Uh, We are on the line with Steve Wood of Poverty Lane Orchards up in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to have you on. So last week we spoke with um, Eleanor Leger from Eden Ice Ciders and talked a little bit um, about cider making. And I wanted to backtrack a little bit and and tuck into uh, apple growing and orchard development. Now, I understand from the website that that your orchard was formerly a a dairy and they started planting trees back in the early 60s. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. And how did you come to the farm? Do you have an apple-growing background, or did you uh, do some on-the-job learning? Uh, <laughs> I started working here in 1965 when I was a kid. So, yeah, I guess I've got an apple-growing background. <laughs> you grew up through the ages. Well, one of the things that's so interesting about apples, in particular in the Northeast, is they've really uh, the market has really changed a lot uh, over the last 40 years. And, and I'm curious if you can kind of paint a picture of what it was like to, to be a youngster on the farm and, and what, the, what an apple orchard business looked like then and maybe contrast that a little bit with how you operate today. Well, we were, we were sort of standard, um, a, a kind of typical New England grower, packer, shipper with a, with a bit of a retail element, you know, pick your own and all that stuff. But we, our main business was, was packing, growing and packing and shipping, chiefly Max and Cortland's, but a, a few other varieties as well. Um, and that was still going on when I started managing the production in 73, and still going on when I bought the orchard in 84. Um, but the 80s changed things quite a lot. The, uh, in, in the 
course of the 80s, a few things happened. Um, one, one was that um, the, the, the packing machinery kind of developed so that um, a, a lot of varieties, these quite delicate varieties like the ones we grew to a very high standard here, which had always had to be packed by hand, suddenly could be graded by machine. Um, and that, when that happened, you know, enormous economies of scale kind of kicked in. Um, and made a lot of our, you know, hand-packing lines around New England suddenly a little bit <laughs> less economical to run. Um, but during the same period, since, since the packing machinery um, was available for these fruit, uh, the, uh, the market started insisting on larger apples, waxed apples, which were not able to be, the apples weren't able to be waxed when you were packing by hand. You know, those little stickers that everybody hates. All, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole thing start, really started to change quite dramatically. And we're, the, the, our, we, in those days, had always traded on the quality of our fruit, not so much the size and not so much our production efficiency or, or the low production efficiency of these, um, you know, somewhat chaotic New England orchards, northern New England orchards. Um, those inefficiencies were compensated for by a market that actually paid for the quality, the eating quality of the fruit we were growing. But as the market started to insist on these sort of apples the size of your head wax with a sticker on them, that quality differential started to disappear. And so, in my view at least, I mean, not everybody agrees with this, it became less and less sensible to do what we were doing. Um, and we had, just by kind of happenstance, in the early 80s, we had uh, conducted a bunch of grafting trials here of heirloom varieties and uh, cider, mostly French and English cider, but some American cider varieties, that is to say hard cider varieties. And we were really at the time, I mean, I called it a commercial experiment, but the truth is we were just practically gardening. We were thinking we'd do a little, you know, it was amusing, and we, th we were just trying to find out whether we could grow any of these things well here. Um, but we had, we, by, the, by the end of the 80s, we had tested a couple hundred varieties, and we found some that we really could grow to an extraordinarily high standard here, cider apples on the one hand and some of these whatever you want to call them, heirlooms or whatever on the other. And when it became more and more clear to us that the business we'd always been in wasn't going to work any longer, and we were trying to figure out how to change or whether to get out or what exactly to do, it occurred to us that we had a decade of horticultural experience with all of these oddball varieties, and so we decided to take a deep breath and just uh, select some of them and plant them. Um, and, uh, you know, in the intervening years, our, the business here has evolved from being a grower-packer-shipper to still being a grower-packer-shipper of sort of specialty heirloom varieties that we send to New York and all over the place, but in much, much smaller quantities. Albeit for much more money, um, and um, and growing the cider fruit, most of which is actually inedible, which took a little bit of a, a, a leap of faith, if you know what I mean. Growing <laughs> a lot of apples you can't eat, um, and uh, you know during that period, obviously among other things, we had to learn how to make cider, but uh, which took a decade or so. But we uh, <coughs> we. We're now, you know, and have been for quite a long time, on the one hand, a bonded winery slash meaning cidery, uh, making um, sort of high-end ciders from the uh, specialty fruit we grow. And uh, we, we, we pack 
you know, Golden Russet, the Soap of Spitzenberg, and Wixen and Ashbeet's Kernel, and all kinds of weird apple varieties people, most people haven't ever heard of, and send them off to specialty markets in places like New York. And then, meanwhile, we still grow, you know, we still grow some Macintosh in Cortland, and we have a pick-your-own operation that mostly concentrates on those, so that hasn't changed. But everything else, it's still very much an orchard. But, um, you know, I mean, the apples we grow for our cider, Farnham Hill Ciders, is, is, is really the main part of the business. So looking back at, you know, this language around grower, packer, shipper, grower, I understand. I think shipper, I understand. Packer, you know, you're, you said you're packing by hand and now the trend is much, you know, towards a much more mechanized packing method. Yeah. Can you just give us some insight into how people talk about apples uh, on the apple market? I mean, do you sell like what's the volume that they're sold in and, and kind of how do people talk about like the first like the, the premium apples or apples that maybe have some imperfections that you would you know typically I think at the farmer's market you'd see them listed as second is that the same type of language when you're looking at a, a larger scale production where you're, where you're shipping apples off where there's kind of different markets for different levels of apples if, if that well, makes sense sort of I mean I the, the unit is essentially a bushel which is 42 pounds and always has been um, and apples are packed typically in some sort of a cardboard box in which they go by wholesale to the, to the market. Um, and so what we were doing in those days was packing the fruit we grew, grading it, and then packing it um, into, into boxes of various description um, and putting them, on, you know, putting them on pallets and sending tractor trailer loads of fruit away to be sold. And what are those um, grades? That's your question. What's that? What? What? Are, what? Are, you said you're grading them. So, what are the grades? Oh, the grades vary, but they, 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 the the market, uh, the, most of the market for apples and everything else in the U.S., despite what a lot of people would like to think, and a lot of us would like to have happen, the market um, really insists on you know basically perfect regular fruit. And that is the huge uh, uh, preponderance of the apple market is, is that. Um, and there's no, I mean, w- with all due respect and really real esteem and regard for the, for the things like the Union Square market, you know, all the farmer's markets around and the places where people are willing to accommodate slightly um, off-grade fruit by off-grade, I mean, fruit with, you know, one sort of cosmetic defect or another. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the market, the broad market, does not accept that. Um, the tractor trailer, the trailers that are hauling produce all over the country are hauling perfect produce all over the country. Um, okay. Uh, but, and uh, perfect, I mean perfect, perfect, but to the market's requirement. Um, and so, you know, if you're if you're growing a red apple, the thing needs to be two thirds or more red. It needs to be perfectly smooth. It usually needs to be waxed. The size and the ca- uh, containers it needs to be absolutely uniform. Um, but it's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, gosh, back in the days when we were doing this, we were sending really very small Macintosh off profitably into the market, still packed in the same sorts of cardboard and packed at the same standard. But we were able to sell two-inch Macintosh profitably exported to England and two-and-a-quarter-inch Macintosh. Those are all. Those all wind up in the juice market now. I mean, everybody, everybody, all the markets exist on bigger apples. 
How big? And, you know, how big are we talking about? Where bigger is fine, but for a lot of varieties, bigger is not better. Bigger is actually more boring. But uh, and Macintosh among them. Um. So yeah, that was one of the things I thought was interesting in your on your website. You guys talked about um, kind of I don't know marketing organizations that that kind of rose up to and, and ended up having this impact of pushing regional varieties aside. As at the grocery store, you saw kind of a rise of Granny Smith apples from the Southern Hemisphere or Red Delicious apples from the West Coast. And I'm wondering if the kind of landscape of of the Northeast or of New Hampshire where you're growing animals kind of impacts what varieties you're able to grow and, and how you're able to um, harvest them. Well, the market obviously has some influence of profound influence on what any one of us grows. I mean, if you're going to grow apples on a piece of ground, you've got to find some way to grow them profitably, and that means you've got to, to some extent, meet the demands of the market. But more broadly, every piece of ground, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about apples or celery, every, every patch of ground with its microclimate and its soils and its aspect and everything about it imposes um, conditions on what things can be grown well there. And in the sort of subset of apples, there are, you know, there are apple varieties that grow very, very well in North Carolina that we can't grow for spit up here. And the same thing's true in reverse. Apples are very forgiving. I mean, you can actually grow most varieties almost anywhere, but growing them to a standard that really makes you roll your eyes back in your head and think you're going to heaven, <laughs> you can only really do that. With most varieties in a few places. And so part of the trick is figuring out what varieties your patch of ground really wants to grow well. Hence our grafting trials of all these hundreds of varieties. When we're trying to figure out unfamiliar varieties, varieties that were not um, you know, typically grown even in this country and, and that were typically grown in very different climates, you know, the only way to really find out whether your piece of ground can grow them well is to try them. Um, so, you know, I mean, you can grow most apples just about anywhere. I mean, as to the you know, Red Delicious had been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Granny, Smith, Granny Smith actually represented something else, which was, which was something that really started happening in the 70s, but the U.S. apple industry didn't really want to notice it, which is that there was a sudden influx of southern hemisphere fruit. Well, I mean, if you think about it for a sec, the, 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 the fall in the south, southern hemisphere is spring here. So everybody here had been building very high-tech storages and everything else. I mean, these things still exist and people still build them. But, you know, in aid of, of keeping apples in good shape for six months or more so that they go into the market in the spring or even early summer. But when the Southern Hemisphere fruit started coming in, that fruit had only been picked, you know, weeks or a month ago. It was fresh because it, because it was fall down there. <laughs> And that really did change things quite a lot. Changed things, I think, more than most people acknowledge at the time. Because of uh, the freshness factor. Well, you can't, I mean, it doesn't matter how um, well built your storage is or how competent a storage operator you are. You know, there's a difference between a six month old apple and an apple that was picked three weeks ago. It just is. Um, and so these, the, the Granny Smith, it wasn't really the variety. It was that they were coming from Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and Chile and places where they had just been picked. 
And that was true for a time of gala, although there are a lot of gala grown in this country now, but Rayburn, there are a lot of varieties that, that, you know, suddenly started coming into the spring markets here. And it really did change. It changed the market quite a lot. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, an awful lot of this has to do with something that is not peculiar to the apple industry, which is that everybody, whether they are, whether they notice it or not, everybody is in effect in the global market, meaning everybody is affected by the by what's going on in the global market. And so, I mean, even the little guy running a fruit stand at the end of the driveway or something, I mean, it's still, um, the way things are grown and sold is, is driven as much by what happens across the whole wide world as it is by any local. Um, wow. So we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'd like to tuck into a little bit of the, uh, the growing process and, and the time frames for some of those experiments you were running. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Written from the Pantheon by Iggy Dean on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. So far, support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Dubois. And I'm Jessica Holsey. We are the entrepreneurs behind Susty Party. Susty Party creates responsibly made, eco-friendly party supplies and compostable tableware. Parties and events generate the second largest amount of waste in the USA, just behind the construction industry. Susty Party products make parties more sustainable and sustainability a little more fun. Susty Party plates, bowls, and straws are available in Whole Foods retail stores and also at SustyParty.com. We offer a curated selection of other Susty-approved party supplies. We also have a commercial division, Sustyware, that sells compostable tableware in bulk to businesses and food service industry establishments. Susty Party is a certified youth trade company and B Corporation. Our social, economic, environmental, and even spiritual values drive Susty Party to live our motto, Respect Respect Earth Earth and and Party On! All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Steve Wood of Farnham Hill Ciders and Poverty Lane Orchards, and we are talking about apples. So, Steve, you know, one of the things I I think is so interesting in food production is this ability to kind of turn off or turn on or ramp up or ramp down your production as the market shifts. And 
Can you give us a sense as far as, um, you know, apples, what is kind of the lifespan of a tree? If I wanted to set up an orchard, um, you know, what, what kind of time investment am I looking at? And if you need to make changes in your organization to, to respond to different market demands or business models, what, what kind of time frame are we looking at? How fast or slow does that change? How, how fast or slow can that change happen? Well, I've just described to you what we've done, which is to, which is a dramatic change in what we grow um, from growing these, you know, eating apples that we were just wholesaling all over the place to growing these inedible apples for making high quality ciders. Um, the difference between growing a tree and growing, say, a pumpkin or a head of lettuce is you can't. I mean, you, you do on the one hand, you, you do. All, we all have to respond to market conditions and our perception of market conditions. But you know, we have this small problem of having to actually grow a tree before we can bring anything to market, and that is a long. That's a that's a long job. I mean, you know, if 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 if, uh, if I decide today that we really need to change what we're growing, um, and I do everything right, and I'm really clever. But I want to grow something strange where I actually have to get the trees custom-made or whatever. Um, uh, you know, I'm a good six years at least away from actually bring, being able to bring that fruit to market with any kind of force, by which time all of the conditions that went into that decision might have changed. So there's a huge lag time with, with, with trees. So you've got, to be, you've got to take the long view. Um, you can't really just sort of uh, suddenly decide, well, next year we're going to grow, grow heirloom tomatoes. It would be, you know, in eight years we're going to grow heirloom tomatoes or heirloom apples. So, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is different from field crops. We, we, we are stuck with the long view because we've got to grow this woody perennial in order to get the, in order to get the fruit at all. And but, what... uh, you know, that said, I mean, the thing is that's, that's true, obviously, of the entire apple industry. And there, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of work on you know trying to get trees into production quicker and you know get get plant them at much higher density so that you can bring fruit to market faster. Um, but our, you know our shift really had to do with um, I mean, we were we were taking the long view. What we reckoned was we used to grow things of substantial inherent value, um, and then that value started to disappear. And that if we were going to continue to grow things and if, you know care about the land and the land being sustained by by you know by what it was, what was being grown on it, sustained meaning kept in farming rather than in house lots or whatever. Um, it, we had to grow something of inherent, of high inherent value, and that's where the cider thing suddenly made a lot of sense to us, because it's uh, uh, you know the, the thing is if I mean whether you it doesn't really matter whether you like our ciders or not. It, you know if our ciders have value in the market, they are based entirely on the fruit we grow and where we grow them. And so they can't be made without that fruit. So if they have value in the market, the, that, that value tracks directly back to the land. We're not just buying, you know, trailer loads of cull fruit of any variety off whatever orchard we can find. We're growing apples for the purpose. It's quite like growing wine grapes. Um, so we're not, you know, I mean, we, we do find that we've made, we, you know, we make myriad mistakes, and then we try to change them either with a bulldozer or with a grafting knife. But, uh, but we're, we are really uh, kind of in for the long haul on this. And when you're looking to, to bring in or experiment with these different varieties, I mean, where do you go for, 
for the kind of raw ingredients? I mean, is there uh, is there a particular source or kind of Garden of Eden for these? All over the world. All, all over, the, over world. the world. All over the world. And so, yeah, how I mean, do you I, choose? A, a, a stick the size of a pencil. If you if you hand me half a dozen sticks the size of a pencil of a variety in the spring of the year, and I graft them, and I know what I'm doing, which we kind of do here in that way at least, um, within several years, maybe three years, I will have enough propagation material to make thousands of trees of that variety. So so we, we, we've looked everywhere for grafting wood of the varieties that we were interested in. Um, and, you know, some of them come from USDA germplasm repositories. Some of them come from old farmers. Some of them come from cider makers in other countries. You know, we've, we've, we've just, we, we've collected wood everywhere. Uh, but not from one, you know, there's not sort of a, um, you know, coolapplewood.com place that we go to get this. <laughs> there's no, like, a Craigslist of the apple rootstock. There probably right. is, but but our researchers have gone all over the place, and they've gone on. And really, we started this. They started this research in the early '80s, so we actually really, you know, we really are. You know, we have been looking at a huge variety of stuff for quite a long time. I, mean, I don't know, a long time, but a long time in the context of a lifetime, I guess. Um, Okay, and but, but yeah, it's not. It's just that there's no there's no single source, and there is no way to judge. How I think I said this before, but there's no way to judge how a, a certain variety will perform in a certain piece of ground without actually checking it out, without actually trying it. Um, so that's uh, that's where the grafting comes in, though, because you can graft a branch on a uh, you can graft a branch on an old tree, and you can actually get flowers and fruit within a few years, which you can't do planting a tree. Right. So it's a it's it's, it's a very good way of testing. And how does I mean? In, in the orchard industry, um, you know, maybe you can just illuminate us a little bit um, based on, on, your, on your models there, but how, how does an orchard deal with, uh, you know, pests or fungus or other kind of things that threaten, threaten the crop? Um, what, what are the kind of tools at your disposal and, and how does having kind of a, a more, a larger variety of apples impact your management of those issues? Well, the last thing doesn't have an impact. Um, what does have an impact? I mean, the, 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 that's a vastly complicated question, and the answer is that there is no standard. But the standard I think people should um, try to adhere to is integrated pest management, or IPM, um, which we've been, you know, engaging in. So we've, we've practiced rigorous, radical IPM for over 30 years here. And all that really means is knowing as best you can, according to the current state of knowledge, what the effect of your actions in, a, in pest management will be, and having most of your actions driven in the context of having to grow a marketable crop, because if you don't grow a marketable crop, there isn't a farm there anymore. But in the context of having to grow a marketable crop, having all of your actions driven primarily by the ecological, the local ecological effect, and, and trying really to disrupt the local ecology as little as possible in the course of growing what, you know, really ought to be admitted is a highly unnatural um, Environment. I mean, you know, a farm is not a natural environment, and so the idea that people can grow things naturally is really almost a joke to me. 
I mean, when we cleared the primeval forest, we turned nature on its ear. And every time somebody drops a plow into a piece of grass, you know, they make a dramatic change in what's, you know, what's what's going on in the structure of soil and what's happening with soil organisms and whatever. So, you know, instead of being sort of seduced by the idea that you're doing things naturally, I think the, the trick is to try not to screw things up too badly or at all if you can help it. People have a notion, a mistaken notion, that organic fruit isn't sprayed, organic crops aren't sprayed. You know, I mean... Some of them aren't sprayed, and some of them are sprayed very little. But I, I know some organic crops, particularly apples, that are sprayed within an inch of their lives with naturally occurring toxins. Well, you know, I've got a little bit of a problem with that. The idea that, you know, you're making some sort of a species distinction between what's natural and what's not, and you're using boatloads of stuff that is actually poisonous but maybe not very effective in order to be able to say that you're doing things naturally. And driving a diesel-powered tractor, you know, three times more than a regular commercial grower would be doing it up and down the road, up and down the aisles, you know, burning up diesel fuel. There's something, there's something, there's a little disconnect here for me at all of this. So I'm told, I mean, it is very complicated, and I guess um, I don't know that in the marketplace there is a really good way of judging. Um, I mean, I think, you know, buying local stuff is probably a good idea. But integrate, IPM, if you see the phrase, the, the, the letters IPM or the phrase integrated pest management, the bet is better that the person who grew the stuff was actually paying really quite close attention to the consequences of what he did. But this is really, it's very, very complicated. And actually just succeeding in this is very complicated. Uh, you know, we, when you plant an orchard, you've basically planted a candy shop for all kinds of organisms. You know, they're all, I mean, you, you, you have an unnatural concentration of all sorts of things that are attracted to the orchard, to, to the apples that you're growing. Um, and so it's a very, very different from having an apple tree in your backyard in your cottage in the woods or whatever. It's, you know, so, but... Um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's a that's that's a whole other show, girl. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to keep you on the line here. I don't know. Um, well, uh, well, I want to touch on just two more things before we run out of time, and and one of them was something I. I wasn't familiar with that. I, I was, you know, you guys on your website have this wonderful and I encourage um, my listeners to check out the website, which is www.povertylaneorchards.com. You have this wonderful kind of tutorial and um, picture kind of graph of the apples uh, over the course of a year with some explanation at what they look like and what's kind of happening on the mm -hmm. orchard. And one of the, um, one of the items there kind of stuck out to me, uh, you're talking about hormone use in, in apple growing. And I wondered if you could just explain what, what that hormone is. And, and Hormone use. I don't recognize this. It was a, like, uh, it was a spray, spraying some to, to, um, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Um, to to um, encourage apples that were uh, would have dropped it during I think the June drop oh. to to drop oh. yeah it's probably about thinning is it or not well the word hormone was there which is I just I was like oh I just had never 
Well, there's a, 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 let me try to guess at this. Auxin is a very interesting plant hormone that is responsible for all kinds of things, including the formation of the incision layer between a leaf axle and its and the stem, but also between a, a fruit stem and, and its spur. And it, it, it also does all manner of other things having to do with regulating the growth in a plant. It's a very, it's an amazing hormone. Um, and um, we will occasionally thin apples by applying a synthetic version of auxin, which tricks the, basically tricks the tree. Um, because the uh, oxen, I'm sorry, this is also vastly complicated. I'm trying to get through this quickly. Oxen, oxen is produced by the by the tree according to its own perception of need. So if you put synthetic oxen oxen on a tree, it stops producing its own endogenous oxen. And in the spring of the year, if we have a, a, a really very heavy crop, way too heavy a crop for the health of the tree, we will sometimes put synthetic oxen on the tree so that it will shut down its own endogenous production of oxen, and then it suddenly wakes up and it can't start making oxen fast enough, and some of the fruits drop off the tree. And it's a way of, it's, it's as close as you can get to natural thinning apart from, you know, actually plucking the apples off by hand. By hand. And I don't know if that's what you're that That is, what that's what I'm talking to, about, yeah. That, that is the sort of thing, the sort of application that hormones might have in in commercial horticulture if, that, if that's an example of it anyway. no that's so i mean i just found that so so interesting um and and because you know the the site goes on to explain at length kind of the importance of, of pruning and and thinning and yeah. if you're looking to produce kind of the best um, volume and quality of apples off of a specific tree you know, that requires a a high level of expertise and management and I think is not akin to letting the tree in your backyard kind of do what it's going to do. That is is right. And it's not, I mean, we're not able to just plant a bunch of trees in the ground and then, you know, sort of sit on the porch and drink coffee and wait for the money to roll in. It actually, (laughs) it it actually, it is a very complicated job. I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's like competent gardening in a way. You just have to really, um, you know, do everything you can to profoundly understand the both both your piece of ground and the and the trees you're growing on it. And then, you know, that each individual variety behaves somewhat differently as well. Um, so it's it, you know, it's not um, getting growing a growing a crop of apples that you can actually sell and justify keeping a piece of land in production is really very complicated. And that's what, that, I mean, that's what the whole cider thing has been about, is trying to find, you know, a, 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 a sort of a group of varieties that we, we can learn to understand, and I think we're scratching the edge of understanding some of these things fairly well, that will, you know, reliably produce very high-quality stuff on our ground, but the high-quality stuff, you know, I mean, if you put it in the kid's lunchbox, you'd wind up in family court. These apples are horrible to eat. But they do, you know, they express themselves beautifully in fermentation, and the whole idea is to grow, you know, to learn all the things we've been talking about, put those things into practice, and then, in the case of our ciders, at least, uh, bring them in a pleasurable and valuable form to a bottle into your table. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. No, I think it, it makes it makes perfect do. sense, and I think it. 
I think one of the lovely things about exploring cider has been just having this kind of lens with which to look at the whole kind of landscape of food production um, from A to Z. And and thank you so much for joining us today. I think if folks want to um, get a chance to try some of the ciders, Cider Week does kick off tomorrow. You can learn about Cider Week events by visiting www.ciderweekny.com. Um, if you want to check out more about Farnham Hill Ciders or Poverty Lane Orchards, make sure to visit their website, www.povertylaneorchards.com. This program, like all programs on the Heritage Radio Network, are archived on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find us as a free podcast through iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher Start Smart Radio. And if you like what you hear, please consider clicking that membership button on our website and becoming a member of the network. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Farm Report. We'll be here next Thursday at 1 o'clock. For listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Heritage Radio Network is now on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices with Stitcher. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Once again, time for the Grow NYC Green Market Update. We are on the line with Gene Hodesh of Grow NYC. Gene, jam-packed uh, updates today, so let's tuck right in. Uh, what's going on at the market? What should we make sure to grab this week because it's on the way out? Hey, so I was thinking that this week, something I've been really glad to still see around at the markets are beans. I made a soup with cranberry beans that was delicious. I picked up some more lima beans. Um, I was at a dinner party on Saturday night, and they served this amazing, like, roasted green bean dish. So those are all products that we get, you know, through the summer and into September, and we've got the dregs out at the markets right now. They're still really delicious, but get them while you can. Awesome. And I am super thrilled to see that on the new list this week, you have uh, black walnuts. Um, Mm -hmm. So what else should we be looking for at the market that's kind of new and exciting? Yeah, so we've got black walnuts, chestnuts. 
um, turnips, white gold, haruki, purple top turnips, celeriac, um, daikon radishes are out. There's this new uh, radish that I hadn't seen before called a hot, uh, it's like a, like a very spicy radish. So it's called a German winter radish, a moot. Munchen beer. I don't, mm. I'm probably not saying that properly, <laughs> but um, they're out there. Brussels sprouts, broccoli rabe. Um, we have all kinds of squash, gooseneck, uh, white pumpkin, blue hubbard, acorn. Um, and then something else that's new, Prospect Hill Orchard. They sell at um, some of our markets more uptown, uh, like at Port Authority, Tucker Square, and Fort Washington. But now they're at Union Square on Fridays, and they have organic apples, which is they're the first organic apples that we've seen at Union Square. So check those out if you're stopping by tomorrow. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to point out is that last year there were a lot of articles that came out in the press saying that there was a pumpkin shortage and everyone got all up in arms and um, we still have pumpkins in our markets, but this year we've got a lot of pumpkins. There's a bumper crop, so make sure to stock up for all of your jack-o'-lantern needs. Oh, nice. I need to get out and get mine. Um, well, what about, is there anything in particular that you want to direct us to for our shopping this weekend? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about how much I really love kale right about this time of year, that I start to do more cooking earlier in the year. In the spring, I really love to make salads that are cold, obviously, with you know new spring greens, and they're very delicate and tender. But this time of year, I spend more time turning on the heat and making soup and roast, etc. But um, if I am kind of short on time and I don't want to turn on the oven, I make a salad with fall greens. I really love to make kale salads. Um, and kale, you know, you'll see it in the market through the winter, but right now it's really good. It's still pretty tender. Um, so I like to make kind of a shaved kale salad where I also really like to make Caesar kale salad. It is fantastic. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to point out was I managed, I, I was invited to a dinner um, at the farm on Adderley, and every course featured mushrooms, which got me thinking about all the amazing mushrooms we have in the market. So I, I think my favorite are mayatake or hen of the woods, and you can just saute them with garlic and a little bit of butter. They're fantastic. Or, of course, oyster mushrooms are really filling, portobellos, chicken mushrooms. I mean, I'd never had those before this dinner, and they were like meat. <laughs> it was really like the consistency of chicken. Um, they're really delicious. So um, definitely check those out. You can make mushroom stock. Um, I, even one year I was vegetarian over Thanksgiving, so I made mushroom gravy, and that was fantastic. Or you can add them to um, any number of other fall dishes that you're making right now. Yeah, oh, that's like so lovely. I mean, that's my one of my favorite times of year to be out and about at the market. You can just go there without even much of a plan, and there's plenty to be inspired to and, and load up your cart so you can uh, eat well all week but while we're out um i know you guys have a, always have a ton of stuff going on are there any particular events we should make sure not to miss Absolutely. So tonight uh, we are hosting our pop-up green market in Harlem, and people are up there setting it up right now. So it'll open up um, at 4 o'clock this afternoon and go through the evening till 9 p.m., and there will be food from neighborhood restaurants. We got um, a beer and wine permit, so there will be some drinks. There's going to be a gospel choir, and, of course, we have a really fabulous lineup of local farms who are going to be selling all manner of fall produce, um, and there will be a, a pumpkin patch there so you can – pick up your pumpkins. Um, so that should be really fun. That's this evening from 4 to 9 at 117th Street and Frederick Douglass Boulevard. And then on Monday at the Astor Center, we are having our Educated Eater event on Rye. So I'll be talking, hosting the panel 
talking to farmers that are in the program that grow rye and talking to a baker that makes really incredible rye bread and also talking to um, a distiller about distilling rye to make whiskey. Um, so those are some big events. And then at market events, always check in on your neighborhood market's webpage. Um, there are a lot of apple pie bake-offs happening all over Brooklyn, some this weekend, some next weekend, but they'll be taking place at Carroll Gardens, Grand Army Plaza, and Cortellu. And then in Queens, there are a couple markets that are doing costume swaps. So nothing to do with food at all, but a really great neighborhood event. If you've got kids and they have old Halloween costumes, you can bring them to the Corona uh, or Socrates Sculpture Park Farmers Markets and um, bring the old uh, Halloween costumes, drop them off, find something new, take someone else's, recycle it, dress your kid up in it. It should be a really nice, nice exchange. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing uh, all the news that's fit for radio. Uh, if you want to hear more about what's happening at markets in your area, because there are Grow NYC Green Markets all over the city, you can visit grownyc.org backslash markets to find out info on cooking demos, book signing, giveaways, and more happenings each week at your neighborhood green market. Or check out just the main site, www.grownyc.org to find out about other opportunities for volunteering, uh, background on the farmers, and general market updates uh, above and beyond what you're hearing here at the Grown NYC Market Update. So tune in next week uh, when we'll be back on the line to hear more about what's happening at the green markets. It's on, let's get it on, it's on, it's on, let's get it on.